tonight's New Testament reading is James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, we are uh, so grateful to be in your presence. You're here to um, serve us. You're here to meet each of us in the place we're at and then together as a community. For some of us, it might be just inquiring after Christianity, what does it mean? Or trying to refine it, or we feel like we're hanging on by a thread, or maybe we've had a great week and we just want to praise you. Thank you. That's your commitment. And we pray you'll continue to do it as we go um, and uh, reflect into your word. In Christ's name, amen. Um, I was thinking about uh, the series Stranger Things. Has anybody seen that series? And, uh, you know, in the first season, there are these two worlds, right? There's the world, the small town, and then there's this other reality, but I couldn't remember what the name of that, does anybody remember what that was? Upside down? Yeah, okay. And in that world, I mean, it is isolating, it's dark, it's scary, it feels like, you know, people could walk miles and never get to you. And, uh, that's what it's like to live in a world where you can never confess your sin to people. It feels like that. And there is, I believe, a great power and great grace that God has for those, us, when you become a community that feels secure and safe enough where I can confess my sin to you. And I've experienced it personally. I remember back in college, the first time I took that risk, and it was so liberating. And then as we, as pastors and elders, meet for every retreat, we do that. Some of that is just pray for me. Some of it is confession of sin. There is a grace that God, and I, I, I don't know how often we're tapping into it. I, I really wonder if there's power that would come to us. And, and that's my goal, for us to sort of wade into that. 
right now. And uh, the connection point in the passage you just heard is last week we talked about coming together and praying for people corporately who are suffering and sick. And I'd mentioned that word sick in the Greek isn't just like physically sick, it can mean weary. It can mean you have a troubled conscience. It can mean you're just exhausted. And there you see there's a link, right? There's a link between the emotional and the spiritual and the physical. And the Bible has always understood that. It's always had this integrated view. And, and it's interesting, in modern culture, modest, modern medicine in the last decades, that's become more clear. Instead of all these things siloed off, emotion and spirit and body, as research leads, you know, the way, you have experts going, oh, there's like a connection to this. A study done in Oxford, I think it was 2014, 15, 16, you don't care. It was in the last six or seven years, right? I am, it is a, a real study. Um, but a serious mental illness that's left untreated could reduce your life expectancy 10 to 20 years. Heart disease, diabetes, you could go on and on. Um, and mental health professionals will tell you that when you and I are anxious, our body goes into a state of alert. It goes into this hypervigilance mode. And when that happens, we're, we're just, our bloodstream and our organs are just flooded with adrenaline, cortisol, all these things. And I mean, some of us have probably already heard from our doctor, listen, if you keep being so anxious, your blood pressure's going up. But it's not just the emotional, physical, there's even acknowledgement of the spiritual. Now, this was a quote I came across, I was reading an article, and this is from the American Academy of Family Physicians. No one really knows for sure how spirituality is related to health. However, it seems the body, mind, and spirit are connected. The health of any one of these elements seem to affect the others. So again, the Christian faith has always understood this integration. For instance, you could go to Psalm 32, which is a corporate psalm, a psalm that people would say together as a community, a penance psalm. And in it, David, who writes it, says, you know, blessed is, the one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, sin is covered. For when I kept silent, unconfessing, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What's he talking about? He's saying that sin actually has physical effect upon us. And it's reflected in what James says when he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be not forgiven, that you may be healed. That you might be healed. Just as we would seek the elders when someone's suffering and sick and they would pray and God might grant healing as we confess our sins to one another. Likewise. Healing. It's, you know, it's a mysterious idea. And of course, the question it raises, are you saying that basically behind all physical sin and suffering, there's a specific sin that's attached to it? And the clear answer to that is no, because Jesus said that. 
His disciples once said to him, especially in their world when they believed everything was fate and connected together and there was a man born blind, and they said, did this happen because his parents sinned? And he said, no, it didn't happen because his parents sinned. I mean, if, if we want to heap pain and pain upon people that are sick, I said last week, we can, uh, we can uh, wound them by saying, you don't have enough faith or you'd be healed. Or number two, like Job's friends, this probably happened because you sinned. What a terrible thing to weigh on people. But does that mean that there's no connection between sin and physical illness? Well, no. The fundamental disorder of the world is sin. We live in a sin-ridden world. And that means all of it, as we said, is integrated in ways that we can't always figure out. Jesus healed a man and he said to him, uh, sin no more or something worse may happen to you. Seemed to be that that man's physical ailment had something to do with his sin. And of course, right, you know. If you ignore your doctor's order and you continue to just abuse your body, well, gluttony, laziness, irresponsible, it's going to affect your body. I, you know, I don't need to labor this point. We understand they're integrated together, but, but what I want us to get to is this converse idea. The reverse is that healthy, a healthy practice of confession and repentance is good medicine. Is it... You know, I'm, I'm someone that struggles with anxiety. I think I'm probably alone. I think no one else does. Um, that's just my narcissism. I don't think anybody else is. No, anyway. But, um, you know, I, uh, yes, I, I seek to believe God's promises, and I ask people to pray, and I, I breathe, and I meditate. Maybe you have things, and maybe you, you know, take some medicine. And but have you ever thought, you know, maybe part of this prescription is I need to be confessing my sin of this to some people I trust. Scripture seems to think so, because what we find out that Jesus Christ is known to be not only a Savior, but a healer. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been, you all know it, by his wounds we are healed. So for the time we got left, I just want to look at why and how. Why we do this and how we do it. And we've already sort of gotten into the why. But I want to drill down a little bit. So I read this article that was in the Atlantic, and it was really interesting. It was talking about soldiers, veterans, that seek help for a PTSD when what they really need is help for what is called moral injury, the trauma of moral injury. And what that is is them dealing with their decisions on the battlefield the time that things crossed their sensibility of right and wrong, their action or inaction. Maybe it was violence within, uh, among friendly, you know, among soldiers, friendly fire. Maybe it was killing an innocent civilian. But this whole world of pain. And the article, uh, of course, said that you know, what we find is uh, veterans that are dealing with shame and guilt 
and depression and alcohol abuse or self-harm, that there's a connection not so much with PTSD, but with this, unresolved guilt, unresolved shame. And uh, in the article, the insight was given, the main difference between PTSD and moral injury, moral injury is not about the loss of safety, but the loss of trust. Trust in others, maybe it's trust in my nation, but listen to this, trust in oneself. Trust in myself. Now, this highlights something that I think gets is really important when we talked about confession and its relationship between actions and identity, who I am. Now, if I gave you a real short phrase of how the Bible understands its theology of the human person, other than be made in the image of God, it would be this, be who you are. Be who you are. Let your ethics and your life flow out of your identity. You see the connection here the struggle that's being happened. And, and one of the things that happens in our culture is we've got these two values. One is identity. I can decide my identity, and then we have freedom. I can live however I want. And we, we, we believe that those things won't cross and hurt one another. But they do. They can't not. Because identity and action flows together. And so... This is the unique good news of the gospel. Because two things, let me give you the shorthand for that. The two things we deal with are guilt and shame. Guilt is I did something wrong. Well, guilt has to do with what I did, shame who I am. And there's a lot of false shame and a lot of great writing that's been done on that, Dr. Kurt Thompson. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is shame that comes from guilt. If someone tells you there isn't, then they're not helping you, not helping you deal with it. And so here's how the Christian gospel addresses that, right? Because God comes himself in person, and he unites himself to our guilt and shame. He unites himself to our sin. I loved what Will said earlier, the idea of, uh, what did you say about you said something about sin is something, and then salvation is... What was that? Do you remember what you said? Say that again. Us trying to be God, and salvation is... God be... Okay. That was, that was very good. I like that. And so, you know, this is what you hear, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He steps into our transgression. He steps into our guilt. And though he's sinless, because of his great love with which he loved you, he absorbs it. This is what the cross is all about. It's not about a guy that just really loved his friends. It's not about self-sacrifice. It is about the Son of God providing an atonement for you. And you're not going to find that in any other faith. God stepping in and dealing with your real guilt, uniting himself. But not only that, he doesn't just unite himself to our sin, he unites us to himself. And so the shame is wiped away. Shame is done away with. And so God would actually say of you and me, 
crazy things. Like you were like a bride that is spotless, without any blemish, blemish, that you are righteous, that you are holy and blameless. You and me, with the lives we live, because why? We're united to his son. Both our guilt is healed, our shame is healed. We are recreated after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this truth, as much as you're hearing me say it and you're believing it, and as much as you preach it to yourself tomorrow and the next day, and I hope you do, it'll never really root and anchor unless it becomes part of corporate confession. That's a peace. That's a peace because we live together. So let me uh, go back in a sense to the, the moral injury in the soldiers. Listen to this. This is from the main clinical psychologist that was doing this research. In order to heal from shame, guilt, and betrayal, you have to own it. The veterans first own it themselves, then they own it with a peer group that understands what they've gone through and isn't going to judge. A key part of moral repair is acknowledging what you've done, and the more people you can acknowledge that with, the more safe people, the more you are going to heal from it. This shouldn't surprise anybody that's a Christian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way in his book, Life Together. In the confession of concrete sins. Now, he uses this phrase, the old man, right? The Christian faith teaches we all have two natures. You got one nature that is the old man that gives itself to dark things and bad want-tos and selfishness. But there's a new man that comes when we come to know Christ. So he says, in the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. He dies before the eyes of not just us and God, but when he dies among my brothers and sisters, when that old man of mine, as I confess him, and you hear it and you receive it, and you don't run away screaming, when that happens, he dies. He dies. And we experience healing. And it feels humiliating, Bonhoeffer says, right? That's why none of us do it. That's why we all try to avoid it. And he says, yet in the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, we experience our rescue and salvation. The prayer of faith will save. And remember, salvation, like the word suffering is sickness, as James would say, it's much wider. It can mean save a life. It can mean save you from disease. It can mean save you from danger. It can mean save a soul. I bring my confession before you. You don't run away. You speak the saving gospel word to me. And I get saved. Have you ever been saved that way? You've been with a group of friends and you spoke that and they heard it and they loved you and they reminded you of God's grace. And you were empowered. You were empowered. But before we get to a quick couple guidelines, I need to get to the second part of this, the why, and it's no surprise, relationships. 
as the scripture calls us to be a forgiving community, well, what's being assumed? Well, we're an offending community. We shouldn't be surprised. You know, that's another part of it. We, it, it here's the thing. It kind of backfires on us. You, it depends on the tradition maybe you came up you know, with, but maybe this idea that a Christian means to be good. You know, I quoted that Flannery O'Connor thing weeks ago, and I just love it so much. He said, people in the South avoid sin so they can avoid Jesus. What does she mean by that? I tr my moral obedience is based on the fact that no one's going to have to say, you need to repent. No one's going to have to see me messy. But if we're in a community where that's expected, we talk about this when we talk about what does it mean to become a cross-cultural community here. There's no way not to mess up. White people are constantly worried about, what if I say something really stupid or prejudicial? or You will. Right? People of color at the same time say, well, you know, what if I actually let people know how I felt? <laughs> if I felt free to vent? You should and you will. And it may not be perfect all the time. I remember, this is something that Meg used to just, I think, really, in a wise way, just rebuke me for. Because uh, we would get into a scuffle, and uh, she would react to my sin, and I was sinning against her. It's not easy being married to a preacher, let me tell you this, because they got lots of devices whereby they will neutralize you. One of my neutralizing things was I would begin to talk about the way she presented the information. Well, you know, the way, but the way you brought it, you know, it's just a way to neutralize. We can do that too, right? But what if we actually believed, no, we're, we're big sinners, and confession was a normal thing? Okay, but back on the relationship thing. Um, there was another cool thing I read, but I'm not going to talk about it because of time. I really want to. It would be short if I mentioned it. Okay, I read this other, the Holy Spirit, he's, Andrew has no problem with that. Other people are like, I've got this mask on. All right. So I read this other thing. It was really intriguing article, The Virtue of Evil. All right. And, and this was kind of the idea. It's saying... Uh, it looked at groups that have committed great wrongs, like you might think of, uh, you know, uh, great genocides that occur. How does that happen? How does that happen? Because one school of thought is people say, I had no idea, I was just like, I didn't know what I was doing. These guys push against it and they say, here's the, the, what happens. And I think this is really clear in any pattern, whether it's, you know, genocide in Armenia, Cambodia, Nazi Germany, uh, against African Americans which slavery certainly was, as people were lynched and killed. And so um, this is what it says. How does that happen? The process is this. First of all, there's a formation of an in-group. There's a formation of a group, you know, ingrown. And the church is not right. We're the group. And then there's an identify, identifying who is threatening us being the group? Because they're on the outside group, and we're going to exclude them. But this is the really deceitful, disgusting part of it. Then the group begins to see it as virtuous to protect itself against that other group and to see them go away. 
to see them wiped away. There was a version of this in the early church, right? I mean, first of all, you could see it with the religious leaders. They were constantly, they identified Jesus and his disciples as that group that needed to be wiped out. And one of their techniques was they were constantly making them feel like they were doing wrong, like they were breaking God's law when they weren't. And then after Jesus dies and resurrects, what you have is uh, the Gentiles start flooding, the non-Jews start flooding into the church, and again you have it where there were some in the Jewish community that said, no, this is the in-group, that is the out-group, and the Apostle Paul just went after that. Why did he care so much about that? Because it had to do with the very essence of the gospel. This is what he says. We read this a couple weeks ago. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. This is the point I'm trying to make here. You and I must confess our group sin too. It's not just individual sin. We must learn to confess our group sin as we understand it. And as we see that group sin, God then can apply grace to it. Because as much as we want to believe we're individuals, we are a body together. We are a family of God, and so we live unto one another. And what happens is we divide. We, we, when we get upset about something or we get upset with someone, it's easy to go, no, you're not part of the family, and I'd actually prefer if you would leave. And so healing means that we as a group can be able to confess and God can be able to heal. Friends, this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 when he says to the Jews and Gentiles, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are no longer two people, you are one people. He has made one out of the two. He has killed the hostility. There's a lot of hostility in the church right now. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of grouping. And the gospel heals that. But to close, how do we do this wisely, right? Because as I say this, you probably think, well, man, maybe you had a negative experience. Maybe you uh, confessed your sin and it was not received well or it was, you know, uh, it was shared. Gossip, the art of confessing other people's sins, right? So, one, how do we do this? We just did it today. Corporate confession as a community is one way we try to learn how to confess our sins together. Supposedly, as we do these things, it ought to bring down the guard. When we're confessing, we ought to be able to say, this is us. Uh, and it may not every sin may. I, I once had a question years and years and years and years ago, and I thought it was a good theological question, um, but even though it had a little like, eh, I'm mad at you about this. And it was, uh, well, why am I being made to confess sins in a corporate confession that maybe I haven't done? Isn't that unbiblical? And I said, well, no, because chances are you have done it at some point. 
But number two, we're a body together. We're not saying every week, every sin we're confessing, but it's teaching us the language. But a couple things I want to urge you to do as we move ahead. Uh, the first thing is, is uh, we first want to look at our life. And here I'm talking about mostly, um, okay, we could talk about this in terms, there's two different ways. One is this idea of I'm aware of a sin in my life. No one really knows. I'd like to tell a couple trusted people. And the other one is I've sinned against someone. I think they know it. I pretty much know it, and I need to go talk to them. Okay, those are the two different ones. So I, I want to do that, say this in light of that. First of all, it, you first want to make sure it's a sin. Some of us might come from traditions or backgrounds where we were told things were sinful and they really weren't. Those of us that have weak consciences, those of us that maybe are people pleasers, you know? If you have a soft, and you know, I confess to you, I'm kind of this person. Where I mean, at the height of my neurosis, I would confess my sins 60 times a day. Now I used to tell myself, well, Martin Luther was like that and some other famous, to make myself feel good. But some of you have soft consciences, you know, OCD, whatever it be, and you're sort of being like, and you just need to step back and get other people to give some input and where you go, you know, th that wasn't really a sin. It wasn't a sin that I got righteously angry at somebody. You know? It wasn't a sin that I felt that way. It wasn't a sin that I enjoyed that movie. It wasn't a sin, you know, fill in the blank. So what is a sin? Well, let's, let's go back to basics with the child's catechism. Not being or doing what God requires and doing what God forbids. Well, how are you going to know that? Well, God has given us the scripture. He's given us the church. He's, right? So that's going to help you. Help you understand, is this really need to confess? But if it is, who needs to hear it? The Bible doesn't say that we're to confess everything to everybody. Right? Private sins should be confessed privately. Interpersonal sins, of course, the people that offended. Public sins, a leader misuses money, a leader does something wrong, their position. Public, and if you need wisdom and counsel, you can always talk to an elder and say, I, I don't really know how far this should go. But it's certainly not going to be helpful for you to go up to someone at the end of the service and say, I just need to confess to you that you've always annoyed me. You know, or I've just always envied the fact that you have lots of friends or envied the job you've had. You don't need to confess that to them, okay? That's a private sin. Maybe you get a couple trusted friends and you say that, but, you know, that's not the sort of thing we're talking about here. But you decide to confess, gather two to three mature spiritual people you know that you trust. Two to three people that are mature who you trust. If you don't know anybody... Get into community, you'll find them. You might want to say, okay, I'm going to approach a leader I know, that's fine too, but I don't think it ought just to be a leader. There's a community that we need to have. James, uh, rather, Galatians says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of uh, gentleness. And there needs to be discernment. There are going to be some sins that maybe you need to exercise some gender wisdom on. Right? Maybe this isn't the best thing to confess in mixed company. Maybe this isn't the best thing to confess in light of, you know, whatever. 
be, I heard this little phrase, thought it was helpful. Be specific, but not explicit. So, you know, as you confess your sin, you want to say more than, well, I got mad, guys. Maybe it'd be better to say, this is what I said to my roommate. Oh, yeah, you do need prayer, right? Or instead of saying, uh, I confess I've lusted, maybe you have to say, I actually went to this website, you know, six times last night. Specifics help people understand how to pray for you. Hiding keeps us in that dark place. But at the same time, you don't want to give so much detail that you cause someone to be tempted or enticed. It's happened to me, you know, part of my, one of the high privileges I have, high privileges I have as a pastor is people will share with me their secret confidence. You know? And I would say most of the time, it's been done, 99% of the time, it's been done with good discretion. But every now and then, I start to feel, I think this person is giving me more detail than I need to know. And I don't know exactly why, but I think they are. We don't need to do that. Um, and of course, as you confess your sin, you don't feel a need to confess other people's sin. Keep it on you, right? Instead of saying, I really lost it with my roommate. Have I told you what a jerk she is? You know, this, 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 this. But, you know, I am sorry. You don't need to do that. Okay, if you're receiving a confession, let me just say a couple things. Because the goal is you're going to be one of those two to three trusted people, and hopefully all of us in a little cluster together will be the same. One is, if someone says to you, uh, I would like to, uh, you to be part of a group where I need to confess something, it's okay to say generally, can you tell me generally what it's going to be about? Because it might be something that you're not in a position to hear for some reason. It might be you struggle with that thing and you're really in the clutches of it and you're like, I, I don't think I need to be the person. Um, there's some humility there. Um, of course, it's held in confidence, but, and this opens a whole can of worms, uh, when you get into exceptions with criminal behavior, and I, I can't go into that <laughs> right now, but if you have questions about that, we can talk about it. Uh, as you receive the confession, Listen to the person and don't fix them. It might be, as they make their confession, everything in you is going to say, it's going to be a thank you, so it's going to be okay, and it's, it wasn't that bad, it was all right, and you know, you, you're, gonna, you're actually robbing them of the power of just them saying this and letting it be heard. And it might take you some time to, to, to ascertain the gravity of what they've said. But you can do this, and you must do this, Share the forgiveness and the love of Jesus, right? You don't have to have answers for everything you heard. But as they bring their confession, it's appropriate. And that's why we have those pardons in the bulletin. You could start cutting them out. These are things you just simply say, well, I want you to hear this. And as we're together with a team more and more, we find ourselves growing in grace. So... This is a real thing that God has given us, a real grace for our community. 
We talked last week about praying for one another in sickness and suffering. This week, the idea of, do I have something? And I, I want to ask you that particularly. Is there something that you know you need to bring to a brother or sister? And you need to confess it. And I know right now, if you're feeling dread, and you're feeling like, mm, and you're feeling like, that is the devil. Be free, brother and sister. All of us are undone before the eyes of God. He closed us with the gospel. There is power together in our community. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work this grace into our community. Thank you for the extent that that happens. I thank you for those clusters of people that already exist. Lord, it's easy sometimes with our friends to not have a spiritual friendship. It's easy sometimes to just kind of like do stuff socially. I pray you would help friendships become spiritual friendships. And I pray, Lord, you would begin to work this grace into our community immediately. In Christ's name, amen.